Hi, everyone. Welcome to the July 2017 issue of the Juno Report. The Juno Report is a service of Guide Dog Users Incorporated. Guide Dog Users Incorporated is a proud affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. The Juno Report can be heard on the first Friday of the month, starting at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and running every couple of hours thereafter until the following day. And shortly after that, you may download the Juno Report as a podcast. If you do listen to us as a podcast, please go to the iTunes site and rate us there. Obviously, we would love to have a good rating, but your rating will help others find the podcast. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Juno Report microphone, Charles Crawford. Charlie is a longtime member of Guide Dog Users Incorporated and is widely and well-known among blind and visually impaired Americans everywhere for his excellent service on a variety of levels and in a variety of places. This month, he joins me representing the Legislative and Advocacy Committee for Guide Dog Users Incorporated. First of all, Charlie, welcome to the program. It's an honor to have you here. Well, thanks for the invitation. I wonder if you would talk a bit, please, about some of the goals you have as the chair of the Legislative and Advocacy Committee, some of the areas where you think we need to be working hard as guide dog users. I believe that there are innumerable amounts of issues that can be probably talked about or tweaked from the more general issues, but to be hopefully as uh, descriptive as possible without uh, getting into any tedious, boring details. I think that there are there are, are basically three areas of concern that GDY has to concern itself with. And for the most part, I think a lot of it depends upon how much of GDY itself becomes involved in the advocacy effort, because it's not really a question of what a committee can do as much as it's a question of what does GDY want, how willing are we to um, to go out and pursue advocacy that we need to do. So having said all of that, I guess the, the, the top priority for me anyway is to develop a sense of cohesion between the GDY affiliates and the advocacy committee to assist in giving those affiliates an opportunity to have some talking points, some educational points, both GDUI members as well as um, stores, public accommodations, and other entities within our society. In short, how do we publicly educate the world around us in a way that is cohesive, intelligent, and, and meaningful in terms of outcomes? So that's, that's one area, and of course that's a huge one. Then there's, there's obviously the more targeted issues, and one that has been boiling up for the last year or so has been this whole notion of what some people are referring to as fake service animals. Other people might classify as animals that are being taken advantage of in terms of uh, pretending they're service animals when, in fact, they're just a regular old pet, and all the things that involve themselves with that, and we can get into that later. But that's, that's a big issue area that we need to deal with. And then finally, there's the whole notion of the the general acceptability of guide dogs in places of public accommodation and in traveling facilities such as planes and trains and boats and all of that. And how welcome are guide dogs in those environments and how should both the uh, guide dog user and the guide dog himself or herself as well as the accommodation behave 
to make sure that the situation goes smoothly for all concerned. So, as you can see, there's a foul amount of stuff to be done there. Yeah, one more word about the committee before I get rambling on here is, you know, the committee right now is pretty much a collection of nine people, some pretty good people on the committee. You know, there's Becky Barnes and, you know, people know Becky from Guiding Eyes and there's uh, the Maria Hansen and she's, uh, you know, obviously the president of New York State guide dog affiliate and there's Marlena Lieberg who fortunately is ill right now but hopefully she'll get better and things will go well and now we got two new members that uh, we've picked up over the last uh, couple of weeks and one is is an attorney up in Connecticut Ellen and then there's a, a guy up there who's been with the Social Security Administration for 25 years or so and so he's involved with the advocacy committee so we're you know we're expanding in terms of our of our knowledge and our expertise to be able to assist in, in given situations. So, for example, if somebody has a problem with with a, a Social Security benefits and their guide dog is involved in that in terms of medical expenses, that sort of thing, the person from Social Security can probably be real helpful in terms of giving us solid information on that level. And, and so we, you know, we, we, we are trying to expand in ways that incorporate different pieces of the equation. I mean, legal expertise are really important, obviously, but also people expertise are important so that when we talk to others, we actually address the whole person and not just some object that we're talking to. And that's that's critical because if people leave an encounter with us feeling as if they're a partner with us, then they're going to be much more likely to be helpful over the over the future events. So... That's 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 what we're trying to do is develop a kind of cohesiveness around the advocacy committee. There are going to be differences of opinion. There are going to be uh, you know attempts to succeed at something and, and not to succeed at it. There are going to be uh, disagreements that might become heated from time to time. Who knows? But I mean the the reality is the bottom line is what's what's in that harness, and that's a, a guide dog we all depend upon. And let's make sure we do good for them. We've done a decent job over the years at educating the public with regard to guide dog etiquette. Perhaps not perfect, but in many, many instances when I am in a shopping area, for example, I will hear a young parent say to a child, you can't touch that dog, you can't pet that dog, it's working. We haven't perhaps educated everyone, but we seem to have made some real inroads and made some real progress. But things seem to be changing. There are instances where guide dog users are still denied service. Some of those denials are coming as a result of newer businesses that have come on the horizon in recent years. Where do you think we are educationally? Where do you think we've been? And where do you think we need to go? What's changing in terms of educating business owners, members of the public, etc., about guide dog use? It's a good question. There's obviously a view of guide dogs, I think, that through the years has been reasonably positive and um, people see guide dogs as you know efficient assistance to folks who are blind and in effect are our eyes and they are I mean obviously we make the decision as we all know that what they're going to do and when they're going to do it but what has happened to sort of mitigate against that has been the the different business models that people have developed so, for example, with the transportation network companies, the Ubers and the Lyfts and other ones, there's been this notion that they are technology companies and they're not in the business 
of accommodating people who are in the business of running a technology platform and providing transportation as a product of that platform. Now, that that is something that they have hung on to, especially Uber, over the initial years of their existence. But it's first of all, it defies logic to say you're not a transportation company when, <laughs> when they call you up and you give them a ride. I mean, really, that's one thing. But the other thing is that to call it a, a, a technology company, that's really addressing the means of communication. So that would be like a taxi company saying, well, we're only a telephone company. We're not really in the business of transportation. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that even the people who have made that argument you know, sort of say to themselves, well, this is not going to last too long because it's a pretty weak argument. And so it's beginning to break down. I mean, there's there's evidence now over the last, oh, I say six months to a year that the the companies are, are beginning to recognize that they are, in fact, a transportation companies. They are, in fact, public accommodations. And they are, in fact, advertising to the public. If you get one of our apps, you can get a ride from us. And that's all there is to it. Now, the minute we begin to, to keep that message strong and say, yep, you gave us an app, so we're going to get a call for a ride, so that's that's all you have to do. Well, I think that ultimately will prevail. However, people being who they are, and there are some folks who really don't, don't really want to have anything to do with animals or dogs or whatever, and those folks, they're going to have to realize that if you get a job, and that job is to transport somebody, and the law says that somebody has a right to have their service animal with them, then you got a job to transport folks for service animals. That's all there is to it. Now that's simple to us, but it isn't so simple to them because they have a lot of they have a lot of most emotional battle in between their decision making process. So even though they may intellectually understand that there are laws that that apply, they have this emotional desire not to not to want to have to get involved with dogs for any number of reasons, some of which are, are not really, and you know, not really viable. If they really look at them, they'll realize that other ones can be more difficult for them. For example, people who have religious conviction that dogs are, dogs are not acceptable, well, it's okay to have that conviction, but it's not okay to have it in a cab you know, or a taxi. And so that's the difference, that's the difference in that circumstance. Then there are other people who claim to be afraid of dogs. And, you know, I have to tell you, I had a, a day when a three Ubers turned us down. And this really was a, a problem. And even though we were able to get to a person at Uber out in California who actually made some things happen, and since then I've noticed a, a trending upwards of more acceptability of guide dogs, even though that happened, it doesn't obviate the fact that we had three people turn us down on our grandson's birthday for crying out loud. And so that's that's the problem. We have to make sure that people who deny us understand the impact of that denial without without being pathetic or anything like that. You know, we're gonna, we're not we're not little Timmy with our crutches. <laughs> this is not a Christmas carol, but it is important that they understand the, the difficulties they create. So that's one, that's one area. Another area is how do we begin to seed the fact that folks who use guide dogs are normal people like everybody else and and need to have 
to be treated as such and not as a special object coming through the door with this dog. Everybody, everybody says, oh, I just love dogs. I'm going to pet that dog. going to love him to death. going to love him to death. Well, you know, that, that's, that's laudable. I mean, you really feel, well, that's right. That's very nice of you to say. Unfortunately, you know, putting a hand over one's eyes doesn't help, you know. So, um, we, we're trying to develop some ways of, of communicating that in a, in a most effective way. And, and I think, uh, suggestions from folks within GDY and, and outside of GDY can help with that as well. I mean, the advocacy committee does, doesn't have all the answers. I mean, we have some answers. And I think we can improve on the ones we do. And when we don't have answers, we can get answers from folks that are, you know, that have been involved with this for years. And so I'm, I'm really hoping that we can expand the advocacy committee to, to maybe as many as 30 members and having people from different parts of, of um, the country involved so that a person in Texas who has a problem can talk to a person in Texas or somebody down south. And the same for somebody in New England or wherever else. Because, you know, I realize it's important for people when they have a problem with their dog, they want to have somebody that they can feel comfortable with. And so it's important for us to try and develop that level as well. I'm a little intrigued by your idea of committee members coming from all parts of the United States and from various walks of life. Talk about the, the value of diversity, in your not just in your committee, but perhaps in Guide Dog Users Incorporated as a whole. How important is that broad base of participation? Think about the, the diversity of people within GDY and there are lots of people who actually have a lot to offer and they just don't see themselves as necessarily being as educated as somebody else or whatever. Well, you know, we're all humans and irrespective of what our educational level is, you know, we have something to offer and, and that's important for people to realize. I've talked with some people who have actually been quite successful in advocating for themselves and when I say to them, you know, it would be great if you could join the advocacy committee because you did such a fine job there. And they're like, ooh, you know, so it's important to get that out. I asked Charlie to comment on potential difficulties that could exist should states begin to require guide dog users to carry liability insurance or other kinds of insurance policies on their dog. When I first went to college, the dean of students or whoever he was said, you're going to have to get an insurance policy for him because he might fall down the stairs. Now, that is the kind of mentality that it may be well-meaning in one sense, but it certainly is demeaning in others. And so when we talk about insurance for service animals or fake service animals or whoever, I mean, I can understand the reasons why they would want that to happen because, you know, there's clearly uh, a responsibility that's involved when your dog attacks one other dog or whatever. But on the other hand, I mean, it places a burden on people that may not be easily met. And I can see, I can see GDY having to come up with some kind of, um, of, uh, insurance program for guide, for guide dogs, you know. And, uh, yeah. But then I could do commercials on TV. My name's Crazy Charlie Crawford. Come on down and get your insurance policy. <laughs> Inevitably, I had to ask questions about dealing with fraudulent service dogs. Exactly what is the solution? And are there short-term and long-term fixes? Because it doesn't really matter to me if your dog is a service animal or not, and you're on an airplane or not. If it's well-behaved, who cares? 
But but if it's not well behaved, that's when the problem comes in. So I, I would be I would be in favor of if it can be demonstrated, and I mean that sincerely, demonstrated that the the animal that caused the problem really did cause the problem and, and was not properly supervised by its handler. Then it seems to me that there are two things that could happen. One is the state could have some level of punitive involvement. And I, I understand that, you know, in states like New Jersey where they talk about if your dog is incapacitated by the other dog and you need a new guide dog, well, the owner of the other dog can pay for the new guide dog. Now, that's, you know, let's take the low end, $40,000. I mean, that would even cause, you know, Bill Gates to have a little, you know. So I think, while I understand the meaning of it, I'm not sure that ultimately that couldn't backfire. So we got to find we got to find some way of mitigating this without alienating everybody else and um, so that's we're still not the at the answer to that yet but I think the behavior issue is what's going to solve it. Our conversation next turned to transportation and transportation regulations specifically those released by or pondered even by the Department of Transportation. I asked Charlie to describe his version of the current regulatory scene where the Department of Transportation is concerned, to talk a little about the history, at least the recent history, and perhaps to think about what may lie ahead. Well, I mean, everybody probably knows already that there was an attempt to start a a change in the rule by convening consumers and uh, airline folks and people from the Department of Transportation, Federal Aviation Administration. And that group broke up into three subgroups and the, one of those subgroups was service animals and um, and uh, admissibility and, and all that stuff on you know how do you how do you get the the service animal on an airplane da, 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 da. and that that group was actually getting fairly close to a solution and the solution would have been basically one of what they call the decision tree. So if there, there are certain threshold questions, for example, if it's a guide dog, well, that's not an issue. That's It's obviously a service animal. But then if it wasn't a guide dog, but it was, say, for example, a psychiatric service dog, is that dog uh, as different from other dogs? Well, yes, it is, because psychiatric service animals are trained not only to provide the... Um, the person with the um, with the problem with assistance, but also they're trained to behave in public. So like guide dogs, they have public training. And so that's the second tier you might call. And then there's there's like a third tier after that, which is little, little Frisky who's coming with his master and helping out. So now those, those kinds of decisions, they have, there was some, some talk about documentation or, you know, a process for determining da, 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 da. And it was getting close to a point where, at minimum, the a guide dog user would need to let the airline know that they were coming with, with their guide dog in advance. And uh, that was off-putting to some people, but then the others, the others might be uh, subjected to more escalating requirements. But that seemed to be the direction in which things were going. And then, as I understand it, the airlines decided, well, we need real documentation. So that sort of stalled that and, and dead in its tracks, as they say. So now the issue is what's going to happen? Well, 
the only intelligence I have is one, nobody really knows. <laughs> and, and two, we might be able to begin discussions again, but under the, under the new understanding that it's going to be more difficult to, to promulgate regulations now because of the, the administration's belief that if you take one step forward, you need to take two back. So I'm not sure what's going to happen there. It may be that there won't be a lot of willingness on the part of the Department of Transportation to change anything because even though there may be some problems now, there'll be a lot worse problems later on if they try to change them. So we'll see what happens with that. We next decided to focus on keeping our feet on the ground, or at least keeping a set of wheels on the ground and our feet inside that vehicle. I talked to Charlie a bit about his experiences with Uber, about the settlement that has relatively recently gone into effect with Uber, and about his hopes for the future, whether things will in fact get a little better with regard to the new transportation business models that are emerging. Well, on the first issue... The hope one, um, I'll just quote Jesse Jackson, you got to keep hope alive. <laughs> and the second one, in terms of the settlements and the things that have come out of that, I think the settlement itself is pretty sound. I mean, there are, there are some concerns I had initially about, well, you know, if you're going to let the driver know that they can't discriminate and then somebody says they discriminated against them and then if you determine that the driver had done that but you couldn't really prove intent or whatever, then you give them a warning and the next time they, they, they get they get removed from the platform from the ability to drive. Well, I had some problems with that. I thought, you know, if it's against the law, it's against the law. So come on, let's get real. And... So that's still a little bit up in the air, but for the most part, they have agreed that if you can demonstrate that the discrimination was cognizant, that the person knew what they were doing when they did it, then they need to be removed from the um, from the service of the whichever service it is, and that I think is good. Also, the the law firms that were involved with the settlement have been following and asking folks who have experience problems with Uber or Lyft or whatever, asked to, to be told about it so they can keep a record of what kind of compliance is happening with the settlement. And that that's good because I think uh, that, that helps us to, to document what's going on, also helps the court to make a determination if it needs to with respect to that. So those two things are pretty good. And I've also, I don't know if people have seen it, but the uh, policy that came out from Lyft, the uh, transportation of service animals, is an excellent policy. It just starts off saying, just know that you have to comply with the, the laws of the jurisdiction in which you're driving. And there's no place in the country where you can't drive without taking a service animal. <laughs> so that's not much, you can't get much more clear than that. Then they go on to say that when you start driving with them, I mean, every every so often when you're driving with them, it's going to be a little pop-up thing on your um, display that says you're driving with service animals, right? And of course you say right. If you don't say right, you don't get it. So anyway, that's good. And they they do spell out what happens if you fail to transport somebody. It's going to result in their being suspended from the service. So I think that's an excellent policy, and and I believe. Now I'm I'm not gonna I'm gonna say this, but I'm not gonna say it as an endorsement because you can't endorse anybody. But you know, after all the problems I have with Uber, I have not I have not used them since I started using Lyft, and I have not had one problem with Lyft. So I think they are they get it, and I think Uber's getting it. So 
I think the future looks bright for us. And in Texas, in Texas, the law was passed in Texas that says you you can't deny somebody because they have a service animal. And there was and they removed all that stuff about medical documentation and that that that. The fact of the matter is you deny somebody with a service animal in Texas, you got a problem. Any final thoughts that perhaps I've missed that you would love to share before we conclude today? I mean this sincerely, you know. All of us who have guide dogs need to be proud of the fact that we have guide dogs and proud of the fact that we get around as independently as we do and we are a support to each other. So, you know, if you're listening to this program, stand up and smile because you got a right to. I'm certainly grateful to Charlie Crawford for his willingness to be able to appear on the program this month. It's been an honor and a delight to include his perspective. We will, from time to time, talk to other leaders within the Guide Dog Users Incorporated group and uh, perhaps get their thoughts on some things as the year progresses. It's been a while since we've had the GDUI president behind this microphone, and so at some point, perhaps once the dust has settled, if you will, from the convention, which as you listen to this, will have ended only a day or so ago out in Nevada, we'll be able to get in touch with some of these folks and perhaps even get their perspective on the convention recently passed. Additionally, over the course of the coming year, we will bring you information from that convention as it was recorded and made available to the uh, the entire Guide Dog Users group. I received an interesting email from someone who asked exactly what is involved in subscribing to the Juno Report. That's a great question, and while I don't have the specific feed that I can pass on to you in terms of a link, I would strongly recommend that you use whatever podcasting receiver you have, whether it is in your PC or perhaps an iPad, an iPhone, or some Android device, whatever it is, even a Victor Stream which is a device used by blind and visually impaired people to read audio material. Even that device can find the Juno report rather easily. I'm a witness to that, having done it myself. If you do a search for Juno, J-U-N-O, report, you should be able to find us fairly easily. And once again, as we have said before, if you haven't done so in the past, we'd love to have your iTunes rating. Let us know how we're doing, what you think we can do better, and we'll make certain that happens. If you wish to contact GDUI, Guide Dog Users Incorporated, you may do so by telephone by calling 866-799-8436. You may visit the organization's online site by pointing your browser to www.guidedogusersinc.org. That's all one word. While the Juno Report is designed to provide you with relatively quick information about Guide Dog Users Incorporated, you may wish to become part of the PawTrax reading community. To do that, you would need to join Guide Dog Users, Inc., and that's as easy as going to the website, looking for the membership link, and completing the online form there. Or you may call the number that I provided just moments ago, and someone there will help you complete that process in person if you prefer not to do it online. Membership in GDUI offers a variety of advantages, and PawTrax is just one of those. PawTrax is the quarterly magazine of Guide Dog Users Incorporated, and writers there come from a diverse set of backgrounds and, and experiences with regard to guide dog use. 
and you can plan on more in-depth information about some of the things we touch here on the Juno Report. Our time is somewhat limited, and so we can't cover everything that perhaps you can find in Tracks. It is well edited and thoughtfully put together, and it's my hope that you will take a look at some perhaps sample issues that may exist on the website, if the, in fact they do. I'm not sure uh, whether that's still the case. But certainly, membership in GDUI offers numerous advantages, including tracks. In fact, at some point in a future podcast, we'll talk to you in greater detail about some of those advantages, and some you may not be all that aware of. So stay with us. And that concludes the Juno Report for July 2017. I'm Nolan Crabb. It's my privilege to host this program each month, along with some other good folks who step in and help out from time to time. And we appreciate very much the fact that you listen. Remember that if you are unable to listen to this program live on ACB Radio, you may certainly download the podcast shortly after it has aired live. Special thanks goes to Larry Turnbull and his staff at ACB Radio for making sure we have the space and for being so kind as to provide us with the opportunity to spend a little time with you. Thanks for listening. We appreciate that, of course. Let's do it again in August. We'll be back with you on August 4th. Until then, thanks again for listening. Have an excellent month, and we will be back together in early August.